This is Kevin with Shared Secrets. In December of 2021, I sat down with Brian Harden, also known as Noid, who is a longtime volunteer at the DEF CON conference, founder of the Layer One conference, uh, and just general great guy in terms of building uh, the computer security community and making sure that it's uh, it's one of uh, inclusivity. So had a great time catching up with with Noid. This didn't get out uh, on time at all. So pulling it back out of the archives and bringing it today, um, I think it's still a great message uh, as well as also it focuses a lot on conferences, which is one thing that hopefully some of us are, are getting back out there and, and attending. Remember that uh, Shared Secrets is now sponsored by RTX Security. That's a company that I founded focused on helping all types of firms and people with cybersecurity problems uh, that really benefit from a more scientific approach in terms of quantification, measurement, uh, program design, strategy. So if you need help with any hard security problems, feel free to reach out to me at info at rtxsecurity.com or podcast at rtxsecurity.com. Thank you so much. And please like and subscribe to the podcast. Five stars review are one of the best ways that you can help. Thank you. Listen, I've had this podcast for almost two years, or I guess a little over a year at this point. In a very early episode, I pissed off a group of quote unquote old school hackers. And at that point, I was like, Man, I only know one old school hacker, and I think he would like what I said. <laughs> so I reached out to you then, and uh, it took us a little bit, but we, we're, you're here now, and I'm excited about it. So I'm now curious, what did you say? I said the hacker counterculture kind of sucks in some important ways, and I couldn't think of anybody that has done more to improve it in the specific ways I was thinking about in terms of uh, being inclusive, <laughs> growing community, and uh, staying out of the uh, the kind of the BS hacker politics or click stuff than you. Because, I mean, you let me <laughs> uh, hang around, and I was as far outside of uh, the hacker click stuff as possible. So that, that was my my quick mental assessment at the time. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, us old school folks are, um, we're a cantankerous bunch and, um, we also kind of don't like it sometimes when truths get dropped. So, <laughs> well, here's my thing. I'm not going to ask you how old you are, <laughs> but I will ask you what your first computer was and we'll go from there. So first computer I ever got to play around with was an Apple two C. Uh, the first one we had in the house was an old uh, 8088, uh, the IBM XT. Ooh, I had I had one. I had two five and a quarters, and then they got uh, upgraded where we sacrificed one of those bays and got a uh, three and a half and hard drive in one side. And the, <laughs> the five and uh, I guess it's five and three quarter floppy. Yeah, five and three quarter on the other. So nice. Now, yeah. did you have the upgraded memory for the XT at all? Or did we you did. One of the advantages I had was my stepfather's an engineer. So when we got the home computer, he wanted to be able to do CAD stuff on it. Ooh. So that meant upgraded graphics. We had CGA and then later EGA graphics. Uh -huh. um, our computer had a five and a quarter inch floppy drive and a 10 megabyte hard drive. That's it. 
That's a nice one. So this is DOS 3.0 probably. for Yeah. Okay. Yeah. DOS, I think 3.2.1 was what we started with. And then I continued to just run with that thing. Uh, at one point, somebody gave me uh, something called a hard card. Hard card? Is that yeah. it's like a, an it's ISA a, uh, memory yep. board? It's an ISA memory board that gave me another 10 megabytes. Um, put a math coprocessor in the thing. And then from there, we... Uh, <laughs> God, I did so much crazy stuff to like just keep that thing limping along <laughs> all the way through school. <laughs> I, I never realized how extensible that that was. I know we had the the same thing. We had an eight bit ISA card made by Quadram that had six hundred brought the memory up to like six hundred forty k, legit. Well, I think that gives us enough to go on. But um, yeah, where did it go from there? So you have you have some computers at home. How did you get fascinated or enticed by? Um, yeah, technology and computers and communications. Well, that's the thing. I've I've been interested in tech since I was a little kid. I was I was that kid that like for Christmas I wanted a toy robot. Um I also wanted a tool set and then immediately used it to take apart the toy robot to figure out how the robot worked. Um so I I just I've been tinkering my whole life. I can't not do it. You know, we've got the computer at the house. And then a buddy of mine, who sadly is no longer with us, but he um, he had a modem, um, 300 baud acoustic coupler. Ooh. And once I saw that I could connect my computer to a network of other computers, like it was game on at that point, I, I, I begged my parents for a modem. Um, the company my folks worked at um, had a BBS. Wow. And their administrator, like he was a hacker and <laughs> he, he saw what I was up to. He, he saw what I was, what I was kind of trying to do. So he encouraged my parents. It was that sort of like, oh, you should wow. probably get this kid a modem. You should probably encourage this kid to play with computers. Cause they're going to be the future. It and was- if you don't, he's going to find some other way. That's probably not something you like. In order to get on the, in order to get out on the, yeah. that company had a BBS to like drop files off on and do some communic like it was a business BBS. It wasn't that they were operating. It was a something. business BBS for the company, and mostly it was message forums as well as like some file repositories. It was, in fact, if I remember right, it was actually running World War Four. Can I ask what kind of uh, what kind of business this this was? It a software company or no? Not at all. Auto manufacturing. Um, they made uh, air conditioning housings and units for, I think, Nissan. Oh, that's crazy. Did you grow? I know that at least when I was hanging out with you, you were, you lived in the Pacific Northwest. Did you grow up in Seattle area or where'd you grow up? Nope. Grew up in, uh, grew up in Florida. And oh. yeah, then when I was a little kid, my parents moved to California and then I was in California until my early 20s when I finally got the hell out and went up to the Northwest. Gotcha. So is this this computer in BBS time of thing is, is taking place in California? Yeah, it's taking place in California. You're on BBSs and then this guy encourages your your parents to support you. But what is that? What does that pivot? What does that mean? Does it mean taking you to a camp or <laughs> bringing well, you someplace or how do you, how do you learn from that? Well, that was the thing. Um, they got me the modem 
And I went over, they took me to work one day and I sat down with the admin. I still remember his name is John. I, I sat down with John and he basically talked to me about how modems work, um, how like different BBSs. He gave me the phone numbers for a bunch that he was on, as well as helping set me up an account on the work one so I could play around and chat with him. Hmm. So that was, I was kind of off to the races at that point. And then once I started realizing that most BBSs usually had a private area that had hack freak type software (laughs) um, and copyright wares and things like that. And at which point he, he gave me access to the private section of his BBS. (laughs) <laughs> so he's running a corporate BBS, but also has a uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> a backdoor that he's using for personal whatever. So um, and being in California in metropolitan areas, there's a BBS for this company. I assume you're pretty ripe with local distance uh, BBS targets or or options. It, it, is that true? Is that yeah a little bit more plentiful than it would be in the middle of uh, rural? There was Illinois? a. F- it was a fair amount, but a, a lot of people, they, they take for granted sort of like unlimited phone calls these days. Um, it used to be like, even within my own area code, if they were, if they were like, if I called say North Orange County from South Orange County, it cost me money. And when you're trying to download something at, you know, 2400 baud, you're going to tie up the phone for hours and so I had to make sure, like I had to find BBSs that were like not only local, but within my zone. So I could call them for free and, you know, not have my parents freak out on me when they got a hundred dollar phone bill. And typically how, I mean, how it worked back then is once you got yourself, once you found one BBS, you invariably would find others. And if you had managed to establish yourself on that BBS is like, yeah, this guy's cool. <laughs> then you could go to other BBSs and they'd be like, Oh yeah. Yeah. I know you from this other one. And then you get in. That's, I guess my next question of like, this is ground level, this community building for the first time. Do you start to meet these people in person or where, where does it, how how does it become a group of people that get together in Las Vegas or, or what's, what's the, what's the steps uh, that kind of progress towards towards this momentum and this this gatherings. So it started with simple stuff like BBS user meets, and I always kind of got a kick out of those because you'd go and meet these people, and half the time they look nothing like what you thought they were going to look like. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember there was a rather prolific hacker in my area who was going to turn up at a BBS meet one night, and I'd heard all these stories about this guy. And uh, yeah, he turned up. He was 13. <laughs> His mom dropped him off. <laughs> well, you were probably 17 or what's the... what's uh, the... Eh, I was probably 16. I was probably 15 or 16. Gotcha. But yeah, he was 13. Meanwhile, another user who I was convinced was in his... You know, I was convinced he was older. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was surprised to find out another user that I had thought was probably 13 was actually in his 20s. <laughs> so it cuts both ways. It's yeah, hard, hard to judge maturity. <laughs> yeah, and then um, I was on a I was on a hacker board, um, North Orange County, called Digital Decay, run by ArcLight, and he started doing 
like every other week meetups at a local coffee shop. And so we'd go to the coffee shop, we'd hang out. And now it's like a, cause a BBS meet just brings in BBS users and they're not necessarily hackers. Whereas a BBS meetup for a hacker, hacker BBS is going to bring in hackers. So now we've kind of got ourselves a little group and um, we find out about DEF CON. Uh, we saw it on, I think, FidoNet. And it made its way to all the other BBS nets. And I did not want to go. I wanted nothing to do with it. I thought the whole thing was a trap. And that everybody who went to Vegas was going to go to jail. And I was going to laugh my ass off when it happened. <laughs> so and this is like 92 would be the first stuff? Yeah. Yeah. 92. And then the same friend that turned me on to, um, you know, the idea of modems um, said, I'm going. We should all go. And um, my father worked in the uh, marketing industry for a long time, and he knows he knows everybody when it comes to like Vegas and like Tahoe and stuff. And he got us a hotel room because remember at this point in time we are. I don't even think I was legal yet. I think I was seventeen, mm-hmm. and uh, which that turned into its own thing once we got to Vegas and I tried to check into the hotel room that was reserved in my name, but I didn't have a major credit card and I wasn't 21 and that was a problem. <laughs> but uh, yeah, went to DEF CON. And then while I was at DEF CON, I had, I had heard of 2600, the magazine. Uh-huh. I'd never actually seen a copy. I had just heard about it. And while I was there, somebody showed me, um, a copy of the magazine and found out that there was these meetings, these 2,600 meetings that went on in a bunch of different cities all over the world. And there was one in Los Angeles, of course, first, first Friday of the month after DEF CON, you know, we're in the car and we're going to LA. We're going to, we're going to go <laughs> check out this thing. And, and it was funny because we showed up and I mean, I think I was probably at maybe the third or fourth meeting of the LA 2600, like it had just started. The distribution of people was fantastic. I remember there was a, there was a bunch of like people that ran BBSs that I'd only heard about, mm-hmm. um, as well as people of various, I remember there was a dude named Tom. Tom worked in the film industry and uh, he was like a gaffer and was really into technology. And so here we are hanging out. He was probably the oldest guy in the group. And you know, he's telling us all kinds of crazy stories from working in the film industry and like hacker stuff. And meanwhile, there's, there's other hackers that are, you know, in their late teens, early twenties and kind of a a neat distribution of people. And the meetings went on for got a couple of years. And then, and this is prime time. Like, so I, you know, I came in as, as a, as a youngster tail end of BBS, right? So dialing into BBS is with like, you know, 14, four, 28, eight. And at the same time, like, so these same years, we start to kind of migrate from hanging out on BBSs to hanging out on shell servers, you know? Yep. I, I totally remember. I had a job at one point where I was doing uh, basically help desk work Mm -hmm. and the computer they had me on had a modem in it. And a couple of times a day, I would dial up some local BBSs, and then I would dial up to my internet provider and get on the shell server and pop into IRC for a little bit. So, yeah, you've got kind of this, the web doesn't exist yet, Mm -hmm. but you've got things like shell servers and BBSs, and everything's kind of coexisting. 
Yeah. And before the web, a lot of this information was the, or the places to hang out was like the alt 2600 mailing list. And uh, probably that's the public one everybody knows about. I assume there's a bunch behind that. Yeah. And then there was this kind of a weird period where I noticed that people weren't posting as much on the BBSs anymore. Mm -hmm. And I was, I went from calling them a couple times a day to calling them once a week, spending more time on the shell server and IRC. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I set up a, uh, I decided for the LA 2600 that we needed to kind of market this thing. So I had a buddy of mine, Capital, um, make up some flyers. He did uh, he did nightclub flyers. And so he made up some flyers for the Los Angeles 2600. I set up a domain. Um, built a mailing list, and that's really when the community started to like take shape. Because now we could keep into con- now we could keep in contact with each other all the time, and not just the first Friday of every month. Okay, do you remember what your internet number was? So you would have been BH like twenty. Nope. <laughs> where, where? Um, LC LC five eight nine. Whose initials are LC? <laughs> oh, the name I'd originally signed up with was Lewis Cipher. Ah, because I am KN twelve twenty eight. So the old, the the people can reverse engineer just uh, chasing right after you on your your tales of that. But I remember yeah. I had a buddy who was TC thirty two, so he was the thirty <laughs> second person with initials TC to register a domain, and we were always pretty impressed by that. Yeah, I know. They blew it all away. <laughs> I know. I know Jeff Moss. Um, I know his internet ID is a double digit. Yeah, it's always pretty impressive when they like a like a like JM thirty or something. Like it's it's pretty impressive. But yeah, yeah, LC five eight nine because I was going by Lucifer. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it it all it all checks out. I, I I'm sure if if we can dig up these these archives, that this is exactly what you would have done. In your, as your personality type. So, uh, so you went to that, what was the first, was that the first DEF CON that you went that, to? That was the, that was the first one. And what was it? I was at DEF CON six, similar story. I was 16. So what was DEF CON one? Like, uh, if you're going to describe DEF CON one, to other people who had a reference of DEFCON 6. I think it's a smaller gap than what DEFCON is today. So, but but oh, what, what was it like? It was crazy. So the entire conference fit in effectively what was a multi-purpose room at the Sands. Like, I remember, I remember this was back in the good old days of Vegas. Um, I, I could smoke in the conference room. Um, although people were getting mad at me and dead addict for smoking. So we had to go sit in the service corridor and watch the talks from there while we smoked. The place held maybe 80 people. So talks, I imagine this is a a room where everybody brings a desktop computer and sets it up. Yeah, no, not even a lot of uh, desktop stuff. We, uh, everybody just sort of showed up. It was a single track thing. Um, had some really interesting talks. Um, in fact, um, like we had a dark druid talked about what to do when the feds show up. (laughs) And then we had Gail Thackeray, who was the district attorney for the state of Arizona, um, who incidentally led the raid on dark druids house. (laughs) And she gave a talk about what to do to keep the feds from coming. (laughs) 
did she lead that raid before or after this? Uh, this oh, event? Uh, no, that happened before. In fact, okay. there was a, there was a whole thing where we had to like keep the two of them separate because he was actively <laughs> under indictment by her. Um, but yeah, we also had uh, Dan Farmer uh, speak. And at the time uh-huh. he was he was the head of security for Sun Microsystems. Uh-huh. And I, I credit him with my sort of entrance into the industry. I had wanted to basically be a paid hacker like all my life. Yeah, and it wasn't going to happen. It just like there was. I mean, it. What I knew of the security industry at that time was largely academic, mm-hmm. and it was basically a bunch of graybeards who had helped um, the people that built this stuff, you know. And the only sort of other security people that floating around out there were like corporate security or uh, former military, and. When you're a young kid who knows a lot about computers and you start trying to rub elbows with these people, they know exactly what you are and they wanted nothing to do with you. The gatekeeping was pretty intense. It was, oh, we got to keep these hackers out. And what I, even back then, I saw it as like, oh, it's a bunch of scared old men. Yeah, kind of clutching to if people don't know this information, we're okay, right? They're trying to contain. It's exactly it. They were gatekeeping because they saw the future and they knew it was coming for them. Uh, yeah. They they knew that, yeah, I might be the first one they came across, but there's more of me. So, I mean, Dan Farmer, one of the most pivotal things he did was release a network scanning tool called Satan that made yep. these types of things maybe more accessible and, and broke. I think it maybe was a, a very instrumental thing to lowering the bar so that it couldn't be ignored, right? It It did. It did. And when I sat there and watched his talk, like, here's this dude with crazy red hair wearing a pair of leather pants talking about getting paid to do security at Sun. And then it was that moment of like, okay, cool. So that is a thing. That is a thing I can do. So, yeah, I kind of credit him with me getting into the industry because I came back from DEF CON 1 going, okay, this isn't a stupid dream. This isn't a dumb dream. This is attainable. I'm just going to have to work my ass off. There was a handful of people that were maybe full-time security people. Certainly, I mean, Dan was probably one of a of a single-digit number of security people that worked for Sun, which also had probably the biggest network of computers at the time, right? So, did you had it maybe a foothold was your or your help desk job was that a technology help desk job were you at least in kind of IT space yeah yeah i was working for a cellular provider in los angeles um that and then i worked for a, effectively a managed service provider back in the early 90s mm-hmm. um i was a field engineer i drive around and fix printers and laptops and things like that um but where things really started to get moving was i synced up with a bunch of people and we decided we were going to start an internet provider. Um, okay. There was, there was only one internet provider in orange County and it was terrible. The guy that ran it was just, he was a jerk. Okay. Now I am an architect of a terrible mid nineties ISP myself. So I'm right here with you. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm excited. So yeah. So we, we rented a warehouse. It was a former train depot oh, uh, that had been con- Mine was a former Kmart, but yeah, it yours had, is cooler. <laughs> it got turned. It, it, it had been turned into artist lofts, and so oh. we moved in there. And the plan was we were going to start this business, but we don't know what the hell we're doing. So in the end, we actually ended up being kind of one of the early hacker collectives. Uh, we we were known as the site. 
So yeah, we had this sort of hacker collective set up. When this whole thing kind of fell apart, uh, we ended up hooking up with another guy who was also trying to start an ISP. And he had the one thing we didn't have. He had money. (laughs) And so he had money, but wasn't really sure what to do. And we're like, well, we know what to do. We just don't have any freaking money. So we worked together and we created an ISP. And the nice thing about when you start something is you get to decide what you do. And I made myself the chief of security. And I made sure our systems were locked down. I conducted penetration testing. Um, so and, this is commenting out shit in inetd.conf. <laughs> yep. And so, yeah, system, let's talk about midnight. Let's, let's get in deep about mid nineties system hardening, turning oh, stuff off, yep. right? Was huge. What OS, what, what OS were you using? It was, it was Intel based. Um, I'm just trying to remember it was some, it wasn't, it was Slackware. That's what it was. It was Slackware okay. Linux. Gotcha. So you could even diligently install the packages you need if you worked really hard at it. <laughs> like you could yeah. have, you had some level of package granularity, but uninstalling software you don't need and turning uncommoning stuff in INET D, it's pretty much the same as people should be doing and have it done <laughs> for 30 years later. Oh, yeah. That. And I, re- I remember going in and editing to turn off packet forwarding. Uh huh. Um, so that way you couldn't get used as a relay. Um, uh-huh. And there was Enabling, just... Enabling uh, Etsy Shadow, I think you would probably have yeah. to do? Or is it... okay, yeah. yeah, Etsy Shadow wasn't the default at that point. So yeah, right. you had to go through and enable Etsy Shadow. Um, you had to turn off anonymous FTP. Um, and uh, it, was a, it was a lot of fun. I got to the point where I had a series of scripts that I could run that would basically just lock the box down. Yeah. And then... On a personal side, I'd gotten my hands on a bunch of Sun Gear. Um, nice. Yeah, some of the Spark Fives. And God, by the end, by the time I divested myself of all of that, I had Spark IPCs, IPXs, Spark Fives. I had an LX20. It looked like a little dictionary. Yeah. <laughs> it was pretty cool. And it was the smallest computer with the biggest, heaviest, clunkiest monitor you've ever seen. I, I had uh, my, my Spark IPC was running, uh, God, it was running NetBSD, and it ran bind in a Cheroot jail. That's advanced. Yeah. And uh, I even had some Spark 20s at one point, um, as well as uh, I got in on the deck multia craze when all those things got dumped, and you could pick them up for 20 bucks. So, and so running alpha NetBSD for alpha as well, um, or actual was, alpha Unix? It was running, uh, yeah, it was... God, I can't even remember what I ran on it. That thing was a piece of crap. Uh, <laughs> There's a reason why they dumped those things. We, we we just greedily gobbled them up and then promptly realized, like, wow, these things are these things are crap. Uh, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, eclectic Unix, especially like commercials. So, like, we had at our ISP, we had uh, some old Next Step boxes that that actually did a lot of stuff, <laughs> but I. I Definitely love a good commercial Unix workstation from the from the nineties. Oh yeah, I worked for IBM at one point, so I was AIX certified, and uh, I liked AIX. And it's what funny. is that thing called Smitty? You got to do everything. Oh, in oh no, you don't have to do it in Smit. <laughs> but that's the thing that was awesome. If you knew what you wanted to do but didn't know how to do it, you could use Smit, 
And it was like a wizard that would guide you through what you <laughs> needed to do. And at the very end, it would show you the command line that it built. Ah, like the girl in uh, Jurassic Park <laughs> running through the, the Irix windows. Yeah. So it would show you the command. So it's like, cool. Now, next time I can just type the command. Um, and it's funny because people love to dog on AIX. But at the same time, do y'all like logical volume management? That's where <laughs> it came from. Mm-hmm. I, at one point, was supporting a healthcare company. And I loved being able to cobble up little bits of like, hey, you know, man, we need, you know, we need, you know, a gigabyte of storage. And I could go out and pull all my drives and then throw a logical volume together of 50 megabytes here, 200 megabytes there. And then just it's scattered all across the uh, server farm. But as far as you're concerned, it's one drive. And we take that for granted now. But at the time, like that was freaking magic. Yeah, I actually the first virtual machine I ever saw, I was at a hospital. So IBM had good healthcare penetration as well as any other industry, but they were running the VSE software. And before the upgrade, they were running the new OS inside of the old OS. And it was a mind blowing thing (laughs) to look at. And I was actually, you know, there as kind of just a hospital volunteer, all the doctor's kids go and volunteer. And the one, one of the things I did that summer was also, they had an, a, a single Unix system that was driving the tape backup for that mainframe and they could never get X windows configured correctly. So I configured <laughs> X windows on AIX for them. And I was like, so proud of myself that I got it to work. It's funny. I don't think I ever used X windows on AIX. Yeah. Looking back at it, I think all I ever used was either command line or some of the real primitive end curses mm-hmm. sort of pseudo GUI. Right. Yeah. This thing had was running X windows. Probably shouldn't have been. <laughs> Actually, at least when I got done with it, they they would try to start it and it would do the old uh, clicky. <laughs> this this is a bad X server config. Try to run it at a display rate that it, the monitor wouldn't support. God, I hated that stuff. Trying to people take for granted getting GUIs running on their <laughs> computers these days. Like you you you've, you didn't have to write your own device driver. Or figure out your own X config. Or nearly break your monitor, putting it at a display mode that it does not support. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For anybody listening to this who's under the age of 40, um, yes, back in the early days of Linux, you could break your monitor. <laughs> you could destroy your monitor with a bad config. Yeah, and mind you, monitors were not cheap then. Yeah, the clicking. <laughs> so scary. I... So you're you went to Defcon. You're you're a part of the local community. How does it pivot to you being such a uh, a strong volunteer leader of all of these communities? Like that that's what I know you as is is generally leading community efforts. Well, part of it was me leading uh, the LA twenty six hundred. You know, I okay. sort of became the sort of face of that thing. Um, until I moved, and at which point in time I sort of passed the torch off. Um, but after the first DEFCON, I came back and I was like, I want to be a part of this. Like, I want to be a part of this. So um, I started calling Jeff Moss, and he would call me into these big conference calls he'd have going with other hackers. And I still remember the call where he said, so do we want to do another one? 
And there was a fair amount of debate as to whether or not there should just be a one shot thing. You know, it was funny and nobody got hurt or in trouble. So it was all good. But then it was like, no, I think we got something here. I, I, I really think we do. And it's like, we really need to, we, we need to do another one, you know? And the plan was originally to do five of them, you know, just like, just like the standard, like the five. In fact, DEFCON almost screwed itself using the defense condition category, five being peace and one being all out nuclear war. Um, in hindsight, Jeff originally had wanted to do DEFCON five and then walk it backwards, four, three, two, one which means at this point in time, we'd be in negative DEFCON territory. <laughs> you know, we, we, we threw another one and now we were kind of starting to get the hang of it. We didn't know as much as we thought we did, but we were, we were kind of getting the hang of it. So were you a utility player in that one in terms of like logistics? I mean, what, what was your role in terms of when the actual conference was running? When the conference was running, there, there didn't used to be departments. Um, you were, if you were staff, you did whatever needed to be done. Right. Okay. Um, you might be sitting there taking money from people and giving out badges. You might be running around trying to find a, like a, like a 13 W three connector. So somebody could get their sun monitor to work. And it was just kind of whatever needed to be done. The crowd was rowdy, but not too rowdy. Cause it was still really small. There was no real need for like security. Um, in fact, half the time we were adversarial towards hotel security. Um, but yeah, so it was mostly just, yeah, make sure the event goes on, make sure the audio's working. Um, you know, the idea of like taping the talks and stuff like that wouldn't come for a while. Who's going to set up with a video camera and go through a ton of VHS tapes and then who's going to dub them on? He's going to, it was like, yeah, like, like, like the digital world is nice because I can go out and get a handy cam or something. Right. For next to nothing, throw an SD card in it and then record the entire conference. So I'm I'm just working backwards from from what I what I saw in DefCon six the talks started to separate and there was like kind of hangout space and a little homebrew network would always get going that was like eight hundred hubs cross connected yep. uh, is that stuff that did that stuff start in two did that stuff grow over time so at DefCon two the big deal we had at DefCon two was we had an internet connection. Uh, Zach Franken had brought his Spark book, which again, Spark, uh, Sun, some Sun Microsystems made a quote unquote laptop. And I use the term very loosely. And Zach had brought his Spark book out. And then through some magic of hotel PBXing, we were able to get an internet connection going to that single computer, which would in turn, you could sit there and uh, I think it was connected out to his Gopher site. Gotcha. Probably ISDN modem? Um, it's coming through the PBX or? I believe it was ISDN, like single channel, but yeah. And then starting, and then there was a, I think DEFCON three, somebody brought a video phone <laughs> and the video phone was neat because what it would do was it would, it would, it was kind of annoying because what would happen is you had a display and if you, and it had a camera and if you wanted to send an image to the other person, you could push a button. And it would take your picture, and then it would put the call on hold while it transmitted data, and then the picture would arrive on the other side. So it's not video conferencing in the way we do it every day now. It was periodically stop and send a picture. Uh, if anything, ham radio people would consider it like slow-scan TV. Uh-huh. Um, yep. but, but yeah, we had that. I think DEFCON 4, yes, DEFCON 4 was the first year we had a network. Um, Lockheed, God rest his soul. Um, Lockheed 
showed up. Um, he was working, I think, for Dell at the time. He um, brought a bunch of gear out, and we actually got a fully functioning network up that if you had brought a laptop, you could you could Ethernet into it. Well, I recall people not just bringing laptops, but whole setups. Oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, laptops were maybe pretty on uh, the rare side of things. Oh yeah, because they were they were expensive as hell. Yeah. Um, I mean, my my first and you know the the support for laptop hardware was always if you're slightly if you're then. Uh, yeah, you know, I was always a big fan of Toshiba's back in the day because for whatever reason, the way Toshiba architected their laptops, you could get Linux running on them because it just thought it was a desktop. Yeah, what were those little the librettos? Yeah, those were like, those were like the coolest thing. I had an insane—I wouldn't even call him a friend, but I know an insane <laughs> hacker from that era, and he managed to get the Intel Spark, uh, or sorry, the uh, the Intel Next Step Unix running on a libretto. Oh and wow, it it was pretty intense. <laughs> oh yeah, no, I was always a fan of those, and I was a fa- I was a huge fan of that that Japanese ThinkPad that had the butterfly keyboard. Uh huh. Um, buddy of mine, I think still has it. <laughs> um, it was his MP3 server for a long time, but those things were just as cool as the libretto. It was like this little mini laptop that you opened yeah. it and a full size keyboard sprang out. What were some of the memorable talks from DEF CON? This is DEF CON 4. I think you said, what, what was the thing that came out oh, in DEF CON 4? Anything? Or the other big thing that happened at DEF CON 4 was it turns out um, Steve Wynn had just built the Monte Carlo. Mm-hmm. Um, we had gotten the contract and then he figured out what we were and <laughs> he had a problem with it. He had a pretty big problem with it. Um, and he did for a long time, probably still does have a big problem with it. Just back. How much money has Defcon made Vegas, including right? the people staying at those hotels? It's in the worst time of year to go to Vegas. <laughs> Right, like it's a complete lull, you know the the dead heat of August. It's just yeah, it's just funny to think about. I think there was a pretty good string of the hotels that were hosting you were kind of on their last legs because so, they were the cheapest ones. And what was it like three or four of them that got blown up by 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 the time DefCon Six ran around? Oh yeah, yeah. No, the sands the sands got blown up. Uh, the Tropicana is not really the Tropicana anymore. The Aladdin is gone. Um, I can't believe the plaza is still around. That place is a dump. The plaza was the one that was hosting DEFCON 6. That was DEFCON 6. Yep. That that goes down actually as my least favorite DEFCON. It's my most favorite. So what made DEFCON 6 not so fun for you? So a couple of things. One, for some reason, well, first off, that was literally the first year we broke into departments. Okay. That was the first year we had departments, and that was the first year I was in charge of security. And the hotel was really, I mean, you probably remember this, the hotel was really aggressive with us. And hackers at the time, if you're aggressive with hackers, they'll return the favor asymmetrically. So they were basically being jerks. And so we said, oh, hey, we're good at being jerks. We'll be jerks too. And so I had their security grabbing me every five minutes, talking to me as if I knew everybody. (laughs) And like, tell your friends to and stop responsible for everything. Yeah, tell your friends to stop messing with the comms. I'm like, I don't know who's doing it. And it was that sort of like, well, you guys all know each other. And I'm like, the hell we do. <laughs> um, so there was that aspect of it. 
very high stress. So that year was a weird one. It, I swear, it felt like we spent almost the entire year preparing for this event. And then like it started and it was over. It was like <laughs> one of those trips where it was like, I'm on the plane going out there. And the next thing I know, I'm on the plane coming home. And I'm just kind of sitting there going like, I put all this effort and I put so much effort into making this thing happen. And it was just over in an instant. And I felt, I felt robbed, <laughs> you know, like, no, it's, no, no. Like, like DEF CON's like, going to go on for another three days to make me happy. You know, it's like hosting your, like your wedding. Right? It's the best party, but you, you like, it goes so fast <laughs> you know, yeah. that you can't participate. So yeah. All right. <laughs> I got to go down memory lane to tell you why it didn't suck. All right. So an open SSH vulnerability was released at that conference. So during the CTF competition, there was an open BSD router that was segmenting people, you know, CTF competitors from each other and from the targets. And some like Nordic team of hackers used their zero day SSH vulnerability to break into that router and lock everybody else out. And Theo was on site. <laughs> so at that point, everybody knew of that. You know, when you go to uh, open SSH's homepage and it says, you know, two remote root vulnerabilities in an extremely long time, that was one of them. <laughs> that was the first one. So that was pretty cool. No? Yeah, no, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and, then, and, and that was the year I actually met a number of people that I'm still very good friends with to this day. That was the year I met Emerson Tan, super awesome guy. Um, I remember he walked up to us at one point and was like, is this DEF CON? And just deadpan, we looked back at him and said, the hell's DEF CON? <laughs> and he was like, what are you guys here for? And we're like, oh, we're professional ping pong players. <laughs> you know, this is a this is a big table tennis event that goes on every year. So if if I were going to tell you the second probably biggest thing in my head about that, would you have a guess as to what it would be? No. CDC released back orifice. Oh, that's so right. For years later, when everybody was using, you know, back orifice to root their friends and send bugs and games and stuff like that, I was like, I was there when they released that. So I, to this day, I can say that and people are impressed. Yeah. Yeah. No, I got, I remember that. Yeah. The, the BO release was the BO, BO and sub seven were like game changers. <laughs> like, like those were probably the first rats out there. So I also got to see Ian Goldberg give a great talk on GSM, and later, years later, I would uh, pretty much go to college for air interface security mm -hmm. and cellular networks. So basically, at the time, his talk was, GSM has pretty good security, but everybody sets their keys to all zeros, so <laughs> we're screwed. Yep. And uh, the famous uh, Jennifer Granick as well, uh, Kevin Mitnick's uh, lawyer, or yep. maybe not Mitnick's lawyer, um, Lawyer to several uh, famous people. She gave a talk at that one. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure if he had achieved it at that point, but it's Doctor Ian Goldberg now. I think he might have been in uh, in grad school or like yeah. This this might have been part of his his research. But yeah, it was so very fond memories from me. And uh, yeah, I was embraced by you know a group of slightly older uh, hacker brethren and. Uh, yeah, had a great time. So your your work was appreciated, certainly by me, even though we would not meet at that point for another 10 years. Nope. 
Nope, we would not. I want to get to layer one because it was it. It's definitely something that's also played a big role in in my life. Um, so maybe let's skip ten years. You're continue to be involved in organizing and. Uh, you know, I think for several years running this security department, which is probably one of the most painful <laughs> jobs and thankless jobs in DEF CON. But what eventually motivates you and if there are other co-founders of Layer One to start a new conference? So one of the things we noticed was that there are a shit ton of hackers in Los Angeles. And like so many hackers in Orange County, LA, Ventura, San Gabriel, but yet for some odd reason, outside of the LA 2600, there was literally nothing. There was no hacker conventions. There was like Torcon had just started in San Diego and we were keeping an eye on that. We decided like, Hey, we should throw a conference. And Torcon was invite only to which I don't meet. It wasn't or at in- least it became invite only at some point. Well, it wasn't invite only. It was just literally outside of unless you basically went to SDSU, you didn't know about it. Okay. Um, it really wasn't advertised. I mean, the very first one was held in, like, I think the library or something at SDSU. Which, by the way, I think it still goes on. Great conference. David Holton. It's David Holton, I think is his name. Yeah, David Great Holton. Guy. Yep. Awesome guy. Um, but yeah, so getting, so starting layer one, it was, yeah. So basically, um, we decided we were going to throw an event and the person that was really driving us on this, uh, was a guy by the name of Ghent Mm -hmm. and Ghent was all about it. And I had just moved to, uh, I had just moved to the Seattle area. So like it kind of started to fall by the wayside and then, um, and then Ghent died. Um, he laid his motorcycle down one day and didn't get back up. And at that point, me and the other organizers kind of stopped and went, you know, we have to do it now. You know, we have to honor his memory because he wanted this thing to happen so badly. So and the first one was 2007, eight. Um, it might've been earlier than that. I think it may have been 2003 or four. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, it was at the LAX. Um, God, it was at one of the big hotels by LAX. Um, the one thing about DEF CON I had never been involved in was contract negotiation with the hotel. <laughs> so this was our first time doing contract negotiation with a hotel. Um, if anybody's listening to this and thinks they want to throw a, a conference at a hotel, let me tell you right now, do not take, they will offer you a deal. They will offer you a deal where you pay a certain amount of money for the conference space, but you're required to bring in a certain amount of room nights. Um, and that's that's literally what it sounds like. If I if I say you got to bring in 150 room nights, you know, so if it's a two day conference, that might be you know what 75 people right. for two nights, whatever. Um, or you could take a food and beverage commit, and that's you commit to buy twenty thousand dollars worth of food and beverage. And if there's if there's something that we know about hackers is they're not going to spend money unless they have to. And even then maybe not. <laughs> well, that and when you throw a regional conference, most people just go home at the end of the day. They don't get a hotel room. Gotcha. So we had all of the Los Angeles hacker underground show up to this thing. And then about 10 o'clock at night, they all went home. <laughs> so you with the yeah. So we had decided not to take the food and beverage commitment. We went with the room nights. And man, did we get burned on that. We ended up out 
thousands and thousands of dollars. It damn near financially ruined us. Um, ruined the conference or ruined like, you guys as like individuals? As, as us as individuals. Oh like I, <laughs> like I sat there and was like, I, I don't have four grand. Where the hell am I going to get four grand? You know? <laughs> um, so, um, whereas the food and beverage commitment, hackers like to drink. So you just make sure everybody at the bar tells them that they're with the conference. Okay. And then suddenly, plus hotels inflate the price of everything. Like uh, one year, one year we had a keg of Guinness. That keg of Guinness cost us $800. <laughs> so pool, pool price on the keg yeah. of Guinness. Thing. So doing $20,000 of food and beverage commitment, not not that hard to run up. Um, I mean, yeah. we we one of the layer ones we did a nacho bar, and I think that nacho bar was like that nacho bar was like nine thousand dollars. Oh, it just makes me angry. It just gets my blood <laughs> pressure up. But yeah, we didn't know what we were doing at that one. What uh, I and I didn't realize it had started so early. So the one I think I went to both, and I think they were both in the Anaheim Marriott. So it might have been like nine and 10 or eight and something like that. It gets all, it's funny. You do this long enough. It gets all blurry at this point. And you know, personal bias. This is the first conference I actually give a talk at. So I had just pivoted from infrastructure architecture to finally kind of settling as a full-time security person. And I am a consultant and we're, we have a small business consultancy that we're trying to uh to grow so my my boss is joel scambray who is a yeah, no, joel. Yeah. yeah joel joel was a you know foundstone founder and yep. my other boss was kevin rich ah. who was a old school at stake guy yep so they kind of encourage me and i they're giving talks and i'm like let, let me let me just look around and and get some you know answer these questions and you know fill out this little form and I so I send it in on the website and my boss actually calls me the next day and he says, "Hey, a buddy of mine is asking about your talk." <laughs> like reaching out to you and I it, it so and uh Luke uh McComey, Pyro, yep. and him used to work together. So I had that little in and I don't know what it was, but you guys uh, accepted my talk, and that was the first time I ever went to a conference as a speaker. Oh, and that was a much different experience, but also just getting back to conferences after kind of that the the ten years. It definitely reminded me about that community, and also just all of the. I, I th- it just felt a lot more open than you know security conferences. I think I'd probably been to a DefCon at some point in like, you know, before that. And it was just kind of, you know, big and you could hard to see talks or something like that. And it was just uh, kind of a, a coming home moment. And I think I met more people. Um, I remember having long talks with like Jim or Gorman and, and all these people that uh, like I had more conversations and like, uh, and as you said, like, you know, these long lasting uh, friendships at, at different levels. Um, yeah, it was just great. Like you get, you guys threw a party at some like little hacker space in an industrial park. Ah, yes. The 23B shop. 23B. And it was a crazy fun, probably a third of the conference or less, you know, 40 or 50 people showed up to that. Um, and it was, uh, just, yeah, a lot of fun meeting new people. 
like just everybody was invited to everything, right? <laughs> like it wasn't, oh, yeah. it wasn't uh, secret handshakes. It wasn't. So that was, that's the openness and, and probably the, the thanks and kind of in a, in a community that can get a little closed off or sometimes elitist. I, I thought I would just give you a shout out for that. That actually followed, uh, followed me a little bit further than that because you lived in Seattle and I had some contract that popped up in Seattle and I don't know how you noticed I was in Seattle, but you pretty much immediately invited me to start eating Chinese food once a week with your friends. Yeah. So just just amazing uh, memories continue. So I thought I would just um, you know share that with you as as being super impactful. I'm sure there's hundreds of people that have the same or similar story, um, you know, of some of the communities that you've you've been so. Uh, such a big contributor for, but you know, I, it's, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody who's given back more of their time. And it sounds like also personal, <laughs> personal finances to, yeah, this, a lot of my to, money. This, <laughs> to this collection of, you know, ragtag people that just like to talk shop. You know, I, I just think it's really cool. Yeah, no, it's, well, that's sort of one of my guiding things has always been try to be as open as possible. Um, like I remember back when I was running the LA 2600, um, we ended up at a association of internet professionals, um, meeting. Uh, they had us come in and do a little hacking demo kind of thing. And one of the other people that were speaking that night was, uh, some of the FBI guys out of the cyber crimes unit in Los Angeles. And we ended up becoming friends with those guys. And like, yeah, we invited them, uh, to 2600. And it was funny because a lot of people on the mailing list are like, what? You invited the feds to 2600. It's like, yeah, let them come down. Let them, let them see that there's nothing nefarious going on. And then maybe they'll leave us alone. And on top of that, you know, getting into computer security, I faced a lot of gatekeeping. Um, I faced a lot of age discrimination. And I always kind of told myself that, like, you know, I'm going to do what I can to make sure nobody else has to put up with this bullshit. And that's kind of been one of my guiding principles around when I build communities is that everybody's welcome to the community. Unless you've chosen to be an asshole, at which point you're not welcome. You can go. You can go the hell away. Uh, I think that's probably a great kind of closing note. We're definitely we didn't even break into the 2010s and later, but w- what a great sentiment to leave on of just give everybody a chance when they become part of the community will grow and then bring something back, right? They may not have, it's not about what they have at any given moment to offer you. Um, when they can, um, they'll reflect on that moment. And if they, they can bring other people up around them, pretty much everybody that I've talked to about, you know, getting into either the industry of computer security or just becoming a security enthusiast, they always had, you know, that mentor out there, whether it be a family mentor and then later on a professional, whatever it is. So, you know, look around each other and keep the doors open and hopefully we get back to a world eventually where, you know, we can hang out in spaces together and not worry about getting too sick and, and just kind of, yeah, get back to it because, uh, it's, it's been so impactful and, uh, I greatly appreciate the impact you've, you've had on me over the years from, cool. from those, um, uh, those early events. And I can't wait to, uh, to see you again. So, yeah, no, I'm, it makes me happy. It's, it's, it's nice when you, you hear it and it's like, okay, cool. But you put the work in and it paid off. Uh, awesome, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And by the way, on the age discrimination front, 
that's something that I faced one way until immediately it felt like the next day. Now I'm going to face it the other way. Oh yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like what was the sweet spot of not feeling too young or too old? I don't know, but I missed it. Yeah. That's, that's the thing <laughs> I've, I've gotten to experience it at both ends of my career. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I guess that's just something that everybody goes through in life, but I wish there was a, there was a sweet spot there. Yeah. All right, but Well, thank you so much for taking the time. This was great. And uh, we'll definitely have you on uh, faster than we got you on the first time. So yeah. Yeah. Now that life is a little bit less crazy, I can do this stuff more often. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. I will talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs>